macht man eigentlich mit Verrätern? Volksgericht. Er will, dass wir uns was anziehen. Hey, was ist das für eine scheiß repressive Truppe hier? Eine sexuelle Befreiung und antiimperialistischer Kampf gehören zusammen, verstehst du? Das kann ich doch gar nicht verstehen, Baby. <lacht> Ficken und Schießen sind ein Ding! <lacht> Fucking and shooting are the same. <lacht> Hello everyone, good to see you all. Welcome back to the Global Politics Podcast at the end of the end of history. This is BungaCast. My name is Alex Hochili in Sao Paulo, Brazil. This is also George Hoare in London. Hello, George. Hey. And Philip Cunliffe in Canterbury. Hello. Hello. So uh, we occasionally do films on this podcast. Uh, back in September 2019, we discussed Loro, Paolo Sorrentino's 2018 biopic of Silvio Berlusconi. Francesco. Abbiamo una eh, brutta notizia da dare. La cosa peggiore che oggi potessimo fare per noi di Mediaset, per noi di Mediaset perché è morto Silvio Berlusconi. Anyway, about film, we were obviously less interested in the formal filmic qualities of Sorrentino's film when we discussed it, and more on the political questions. What explained the appeal of Berlusconi and why the left was never able to dethrone him? What does the film say about 2000s Italy and the relevance it has to our time? Um, speaking of our time, it's, I think, on the day that we record this, six years to the day that we started this podcast. Six years, guys, and 333-odd episodes, possibly a little bit more, because we may have miscounted. It's not our strong suit, but, uh, you know, it's quite a quite a mark, six years. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've been struggling as urban podcasting gorillas for six years. Um, mm. The Red Army faction went a little bit longer. Who achieved more? We'll see by the time we're, we're, we've reached the number of years that they clocked up. That's right. I mean, if we can't uh, rely on persuasion or organization, sheer force will have to do. That's what we try to do on this podcast. <laughs> um, George, why don't, you, why don't you tell us about what we're discussing today? Listener, you might yeah, already have guessed. Yeah, we're not discussing the, um, the Hotuli-Hor uh, complex or the hotuli Cunliffe Complex, but rather the Biedermeinhof Complex, which is a um, German film from 2008, um, directed by Uli Edel. Um, and I should apologize in advance any German-speaking listeners. Um, I'm going <laughs> to mispronounce probably pretty much every German word, but, you know, you take it as it comes. So this, yeah, film tells the story of this uh, left-wing urban guerrilla group, the Red Army Faction, um, and the film runs from, to, or the story of the film, the chronology of the film is from 1967 to 1977. So it stars uh, Moritz um, Bleibtreu, who you might recognize from Run Lo La Run as Andreas Bader, Martina Gledick as Ulrika Meinhof, and Johanna uh, Wolakek, no, Wokalek as Gudrun en Enslin. So, yeah, so what happens in this film for listeners who haven't uh, seen it? 
definitely check it out though. Um, it is well worth a watch. Um, so the plot isn't too complicated, but since it does take in quite a few historical events and there are quite a number of protagonists, I think it's worth us going through a little bit what actually happened so listeners can uh, who haven't seen the film or haven't watched it in a while can uh, remember what happens. So yeah, the film begins with this kind of bucolic scene of a family holiday and introduces us to one of the central characters, the left-wing journalist Ulrika Meinhof. She's enjoying this kind of typical middle-class family life and, um, you know, straight away political events kind of intercede. We see the protest by the West German student movement at the visit of the Shah of Iran to West Berlin in June 1967. And you hear... Um, Meinhof's kind of reading her article about it at the same time you see these scenes of the the police and the Shah's security team attacking the protesters and eventually uh, an unarmed protester is shot in pretty cold blood by a police officer. So action continues with Meinhof in a televised debate calling the democratically elected government of West Germany a fascist police state um, inspiring these two young radicals Gudrun Eslin and Andreas Bader to bomb a department store in Frankfurt and you get to see this in quite uh, quite graphic detail. And they just generally at this point drive around, stealing cars, drinking, kind of being cool and just generally doing crimes to stick it to the man. Um, eventually arrested for the bombing, Meinhof uh, ends up interviewing Enslin in prison, finding herself drawn to their theories of armed struggle against capitalism. We then see, as the, as the film takes us through, Meinhof becoming increasingly sympathetic to Bader and Enslin and their gang of, of young uh, left-wing radicals. She leaves her husband and um, Bader, who at this point is still in custody. She arranges to have him interviewed under the pretext of them writing a book together. And this is essentially, I would say, one of the um, turning points of the film. So we see this kind of Enslin and the others having shot a, a, a custody officer in springing Bader from this um, uh, library type uh, location. Um, yeah, there's a they kind of all escape out the window and uh, Meinhof's there deciding what is she going to stick to the original plan of being this journalist who's caught up in the violence um, and she and kind of an innocent bystander and she decides no she's going to flee with them so she jumps out the window joins Bader and Enslin and essentially ban abandons her middle class life at this point so yeah as I said go through this in a bit of detail and then we can see what what we think of it the action then moves abroad so after depositing her two children in Sicily, Meinhof joins Bard, Enslin and the rest at a training uh, camp in, in Jordan. And we heard some footage from this uh, at the beginning, right at the top of the show. The gang then returned to Germany, styling themselves as the Red Army faction and commit a series of bank robberies. And increasingly, their profile, influence and size um, grows. Things at this point escalate quite um, quite seriously. An RAF member, an RAF is... is um, strange for for a british uh speaker because this is also the royal air force but in this context just assume this now that we're talking about the red army faction not the royal air force so an raf member drives through a roadblock and is shot to death police stations and u.s military bases are bombed by the raf in retaliation the police and security services increasingly employ employ kind of uh profiling and various other sophisticated methods and track down Bader, Meinhof, RAF member Holger Mines and Enslin, and they're all arrested. The film doesn't show the chronology of uh, all the time um, of what's happening, but these uh, arrests occurred in June 1972. So being in prison, they stage a, a hunger strike. 
um, which resolves it results in the death of of mines and the last chance for escape essentially is when in 1975 the RAF take hostages in the West German embassy in Stockholm um, although this ends in disaster basically uh, with one of the RAF members shot um, Ulrich Vessel killed by the police and another one um, who is shot Siegfried Hausner um, ends up dying in hospital so we then kind of move to the last part of the film where in prison subject to isolation and various other privations and with little chance of escape the RAF members essentially start to unravel so Bader and Enslin turn against Meinhof calling her a traitor and Meinhof eventually is shown to hang herself in her cell so in the doomed attempts to get the remaining members released the RAF attempt to kidnap a bank president who shot dead in the struggle kidnap an industrialist hijack a plane over the Mediterranean Sea diverting it to Somalia and we'll kind of talk about probably some of these events in a bit more detail because these all did happen um, but the West German government is um, does not release the prisoners. And so on the 17th of November, October 1977, and again, the film doesn't show the exact dates, but this is when this happened, um, Bader and another um, member are shown to shoot themselves. Uh, no, they're not. They're shown to have shot themselves with smuggled guns. Uh, Enslin hangs herself or is shown to have hung herself and another prisoner um, is shown to have stabbed themselves in the chest. And I'm I'm using that kind of weird circumlocution because there is a bit of dispute as to what has actually happened there which i'm sure we'll we'll get on to yeah so then the film essentially concludes with um brigitte monhaupt um who'd completed her sentence and then been released is shown to have taken over command of the raf and tells the remaining members that the prisoners were not murdered by the authorities as the raf had been um, supposing but were rather in control of the outcome until the very end the film then concludes with the RAF dumping the body of this kidnapped industrialist on the France-Belgian border and the sound of a gunshot. So that's the basic plot. Anything to, to throw in before I move on to the reception of the film? Yes, you missed out the uh, brilliant casting decision of having uh, Bruno Gantz yes. as leading up the um, security. I think, I don't know if he's, I can't quite recall, is he Minister of Interior in the film? No, or he's... He- he, he's a permanent kind of security, uh, I think, chief of police or some, some internal security. Yeah, well, he heads up the kind of the West German state's response to um, to the uh, kind of the terrorist actions. And it was a brilliant piece of casting because it was only recently before then that Bruno Gantz had made his name um, as Hitler in the Downfall movie. Which you know, I mean, it, it was a brilliant made his name for for foreign audiences at least, yeah. Yeah, well, or you know, kind of. I mean, that this is the kind of internationally, it's the role for which he's most famous. Um, and the reason it was a brilliant piece of casting, obviously, is because the RAF were always um, whining about how West Germany was actually a fascist state, and so they got the actor who played Hitler to play the head of the security um, services response. So I thought it was quite good. Yeah, good good point. Um, yeah, so in terms of the reception of the film, I think it's fair to say it was pretty well received generally, nominated for the Best Foreign um, Language Film at the Academy Awards and Best Foreign Language Film at the Golden Globes as well. Christopher Hitchens, for what it's worth, um, liked it for not glamorizing Marxist terrorism and the son of the murder industrialist I, that I spoke about previously um, liked it a lot. For showing the RF as bloodthirsty murderers, but it's worth into in a and we'll talk about some of the I guess the film analysis of it and the political meaning. But it's also worth saying that Oliver Assayas, who directed a film on Carlos the Jackal, which is well, it's not a film; it's like a long documentary, like five hours, but it's 
it is good um so that he didn't he didn't like it he didn't buy these this collective suicide theory um saying that the supposed suicides in stamheim prison are for me the elephant in the living room of german politics dealing with that subject i were the um, prisoners murdered by the state or did they um did they com commit suicide i.e uh, remain in control of the outcome until the very end so we can get more into what the RAF achieved or didn't um but i i consulted wikipedia for some for some numbers um and yeah there was several um 100 bombings 34 deaths 25 members support or supporters killed and in terms of the RAF today uh, disbanded in 1998 and in their final letter they stated that um, their existence was futile in a world where the threat to people's lives arises from the new hegemony of the neoliberal world order, which is a direct quote, and that's kind of interesting. Um, and as the film theorist and friend of the pod, Maron Tom concludes, it is no accident that the end of the RAF, um, a group that saw itself fighting for an internationalist emancipatory cause, came about not too long after the emergence of post-politics. With the foreclosure of radical change per se, the RAF's own concept of protest had also lost its ideological foundation. So that's that right in the middle of that end of history period in 1998. So that's some of the, yeah, anything to, to throw in there before we... we well, I mean, it, I think it's it's good that you mentioned the ASEAP kind of three-part film on Carlos the Jackal, because that, I, I remember watching that, I think I watched that after Badermeinhof complex came out um i mean it actually came out i think two years later but i only watched it kind of a few years later on and they it immediately put myself put me in mind of the bader meinhof complex because it takes i mean of the subject matter obviously because it's about kind of post-1960s terrorism um and the degeneration of the new left into terrorism um or at least a section of the new left into terrorism and the carlos uh, Carlos, the depiction of Carlos the Jackal is even more degenerate, I think, um, in terms of it being just explicitly criminal by a certain stage in proceedings, um, which the RAF, um, you know, walks the line, I guess, between dissidence and delinquency, um, but uh, but never goes all the way in the way that Carlos the Jackal does, becoming a gun for but hire. But it's always in degeneracy. I mean, I suppose I would maybe take, you know, kind of, I'd maybe qualify what Marin said a bit. In as much as the, you know, they're, I mean, obviously they're the kind of um, extreme fringe of a certain kind of 68 or politics um, or the aftermath of 68. But I'd also, there is an element in which they are themselves, I think, post-political. Um, you know, by in what the sense? Well, in the sense that they, you know, the, that the left abandoned the idea of um, political transformation through politics in the sense of, you know, kind of um, winning people over in a very basic sense, you know, um, through an organized labor movement that did exist in Germany, through party political um, work, you know, through the ordinary business of politics, instead short-circuiting that, seeing, de decrying the West German state as, um, you know, still being fascist and that the masses were effectively too befuddled to be engaged in um, political work and that the only option was direct armed insurrection. You know, I think, in a, I mean, in itself, it's a kind of, it's already a, a post, you know, I mean, harbinger of post-politics would be pushing the point too far, but it mm. is like it already, you know, there is a post-political element to the decision to engage, to treat West Germany as if it was, you know, kind of um, the domain for a third world style guerrilla struggle. 
Yeah, no, I, I'm. I know what you're saying. There is. We can talk about, I guess, some of how the film portrays what they're trying to achieve or their political project, which I think it it doesn't do with a great deal of um, detail. Um, but I think that's important to the potentially the, the effect that the film has uh, I overall. Think, I mean, yes and no. You know, I mean, there are some moments. There's that scene where I can't remember which one of them it is now, but she's um, she one of the female terrorists. Is it um, is it Enslin? Has this diatribe like there's some something about the Arab-Israeli conflict comes up on the news when she's there, kind of with her kid and her parents, and she launches into this kind of bizarre monologue and diatribe. Yeah, I think that is Enslin with when Enslin. with her sister and her her family against, um, and she launches into this diatribe against her parents yeah. for being um, totally kind of apolitical and indifferent. Cool. So, um, yeah, in- introduction over. I guess the first question is, because uh, I think this was uh, all of our at least second time watching it. I We'd seen it when it came out and re-watching it rather than watching it for, for the first time in 2023. What would what did we make of it? What was our response to the uh, to the film? Well, I mean, I guess immediately I was, what, this time round, much more kind of, I don't want to say horrified by the violence or something like that, but... Um, you become much, a, you become a centrist dad. I've become a centrist dad. When you watched dad, it the yeah. first time, you loved it, didn't you? Well, so, yeah, so I watched it obviously dad. more than when it came out. So it's about 15 years ago. And I was like, obviously, you know, repulsed or, or you know, kind of laughed at the... Fascinated. Laughed at the ridiculous parts of, of you know, things like the scene in the desert, which you'll have heard a clip of at the very beginning of this episode of, you know, fucking shooting is the same thing, anti-imperialism and sexual liberation is the same. All that stuff I thought was obviously stupid. Um, but there were certain elements of like, I... I, I but wait, 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 just, just when you say stupid, when you say stupid, do you mean you think it was an inaccurate portrayal or an accurate... No. No, I think it was an accurate. I thought it was an accurate portrayal back then, and I think it is now. Um, but you know, the, I, there was a certain verve depicted there amongst these revolutionaries, which I maybe admired or had a certain kind of soft spot for. Whereas watching it now, I really was just like, "Oh, you idiots, um, you absolute nihilists!" So you know, obviously that changes, but that's probably more to do with me than than with anything else. Yeah, you're not, you're not cool. You're not cool anymore. You, exactly. You know, um, Phil, no longer living in Hoxton. <laughs> um, I'd want to say I was always centrist dad then. Um, well, only centrist no, I mean, dads I... were ever called at Hoxton anyway, so I guess that is <laughs> that is confirmation. I, Radical um... centrist dad. Yeah. <laughs> I st- I think my my response is essentially the same. You know, in the sense that I appreciated. I don't think they glamorized it, or as as much as they did, kind of glamorize. Um, the Red Army faction, they they capture what was part of its appeal in that context. You know, in terms of the boots, the mini skirts, um, the style, the leather jackets, the sunglasses, um, the uh, you know, the shooting escapades, like the assassination attempt on the motorcycle and motorbike and what have you. Um, you know, so I think they, you know, insofar as they capture that that kind of um the romantic glamour of that of um, 60s and 70s terrorism and what have you. I think they do that effectively. And, you know, I yeah. still I still think that's true. Yeah. I mean, I think I would be broadly I, the same as the two of you in that. You I, know, I, remember watch- I, was, you know, I agree with I, back then and still, I still find, yeah. 
you know, the kind of the um, the infantile character of their politics really striking and also um, effectively captured in the film. Yeah. I mean, I think I was probably relatively sympathetic to it, sympathetic to them when the film first came out thinking, you know, these, you know, there's this feeling of like, oh, wouldn't it be good to just do something, you know, even if it's a doomed romantic self-destructive yeah. Yeah. gesture, like isn't, you know, that's better than nothing. And at least, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're being real and authentic and all that sort of so thing. You, but, so you decided to become a podcaster. Yeah, exactly. I, st- I decided to to continue the struggle in the in the in the best way that I could. Um, um, it, it's worth noting that the film came out in November two thousand eight. I think so. This was very much end of history. Although you know it was two months after Lehman Brothers fell, but you know nevertheless, it was. I, I think that that feeling of like oh, I want to do something was in part of the uh, reflection and response to the complete sense of stasis of hmm. politics um which you know you might feel like politics is stuck today but you know you don't <laughs> it's nothing compared to what it was like in 2008 so yeah i mean i guess on rewatching it in 2023 um jameson talks about postmodern nostalgia films where history is commodified and i definitely did feel that i was like consuming some history i needed to get my my dose of kind of 60s 70s radicalism and and kind of you know re- relive that that moment alex yeah no i mean and, and it's worth putting in the context of german cinema at the time um, or at least the the stuff that made it out of germany and was popular elsewhere because you've got i think in the space of a couple of years quite a couple of films which deal with germany's past so you've got goodbye lenin right you've got downfall um sophie scholl uh, the Lives of Others, and then Bader Meinhof Complex, all in the kind of mid 2000s, um, which come out. And I think that aspect of commodifying the past is definitely, definitely the case with these. It's an element of, you know, Germany has come to terms with its bad old past, and we can appreciate it, uh, you know, through film. Um, and but we can, at the end of the day, come out of the cinema feeling like, you know, kind of happily, complacently, it's good that we don't live back then, um, whether that's, you know, the history of the Stasi, the DDR, or the Nazis in one form or the, uh, another, or indeed, you know, left-wing terrorism. So it's like, it's all neatly kind of packaged up and put in the past. All very good films, actually, incidentally, but, uh, yeah. but I think that they, they all, they all um, I guess, fall foul, I guess, of, of what Jameson described there as, you know, commodified nostalgia. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's worth just putting it in the context point. of the um, the of films about the the RAF as well. So the, there's this idea that there's three generations of of the RAF and the the first generation. So that's like Bader, Meinhof, and Enslin centrally, um, and that's what this film's about. But there's also you know multiple generations of films about the RAF. So the ones that came out immediately, um, there that's that that kind of before the unification of Germany, which I think is an important kind of contextual point, these were much more concerned with establishing the legitimacy of the state. Um, And so you had films like The Lost Honour of Katharina Bloom from 1975, Germany in Autumn from 1978, and that's reflecting on the German autumn of 1977, which I'm sure we'll talk about, which is where the film kind of ends and all of these things happen at the same time. And then, yeah, Alex, you mentioned some of the the kind of the later generation, that kind of post-unification looking back, commodifying, perhaps kind of selling back some radicalism of the RAF, that that kind of um, different vantage point, it does probably feel a little bit safer for a German audience to be looking back at this stuff when 
Germany has been unified. You're at the end of history. There's a, you know, there's a, a kind of a, a safer um, context for handling these potentially kind of challenging or or difficult ideas. I mean, so, there's also one other film yeah. that I wanted to bring in here, um, which I watched more recently. It was, I think it was on Mubi. I don't know if it's still on there. I guess it depends where you live. If you subscribe to that service, um, a film called The State I Am In, which was Christian Petzold's first film, came out in 2000. And it's about the sort of warped family life of fugitives. Um, the parents were both members of the RAF, or I think it's... Uh, maybe I don't know if you know that it's the RAF, but some left-wing, far-left terrorist group, uh, and their daughter, and their daughter who they try to protect from the past, but at the same time, they're constantly um, having to flee. Um, and so they're in Portugal trying to arrange um, to go to Brazil, but then they're unable to, and they have to go back to Germany, and they have to you know, scrounge around for money from uh, former comrades and so on. And um, I, I think that that film gives... It has a very different feel, obviously, to the um, Bader Meinhof complex. Um, not not only because it takes place much later, but also because it ha- expresses a, a kind of more melancholic sort of feel, uh, and and in, of these people kind of still stuck with the past because it you know they're 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 highly wanted criminals. Um, at the same time as trying to live a normal life, a normal capitalist life, and and that is expressed even most clearly, I guess, by the daughter who's like. I don't want to, I, I just want to have friends and have a school and live in one place rather than have to trout, you know, move around running away from the law. Um, and it's interesting just because uh, there's a nice counterpoint in terms of how these parents relate to their child um, in trying to protect her from the past uh, versus Ulrika Meinhof's abandonment of her children, which actually on rewatching, given that you asked the question, George, on rewatching, I found much more shocking now than I than I did the first time round. At the time, it was like maybe a, an index of her of Ulrika Meinhof's revolutionary commitment that she was even willing to sacrifice her children. Um, this time round, it just seemed, you know, horrific, right? Um, and we can go into the kind mm-hmm. of. Um, the sort of actionism um, and the potential nihilism that is contained in that um, later and, on. As and your psychological evolution as well. And my own psychological evolution. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As centrist in, dad. In reading the film, we're, we're reading ourselves. Um, any any other films before we like move on to what the film suggests about the appeal of the Red Army faction? No, so that's, yeah. I mean, in terms of, I guess the, the film is, as all films are, trying to tell a, a story, Um and I think one of the things which which comes through is that there's this device of the um, and these both invented characters, the Bruno Gans character and his his like um, assistant who are able to talk from that kind of state perspective about you know what is the why are there terrorists? What is the um, what is the appeal of the Red Army faction? Because they're simultaneously sort of I guess a little bit drawn to the to the events or shocked by and horrified by the you know the the violence they commit but they're also trying to understand them in order to kind of deal with them as a, a state um you know does to any any violent criminals or that's how it's, it's packaged at least so yeah what what does the film uh, suggest about why the red army faction um were appealing to young people in in uh, in germany at that point in time See, that was the weakest part, I thought, was the discussions, um, Bruno Ganz's discussions with his um, with his uh, assistants about, you know, what the appeal is. And maybe it's a weakness of, I mean, I was just making the case that it was a strength of the film, but maybe it was a weakness that most of the appeal is kind of conveyed through the aesthetic rather than through the politics. Um, on the other hand, 
you know, I mean, maybe that's the point. There wasn't really much, you know, the politics actually, despite all their kind of very detailed proclamations, which, um, uh, you know, kind of um, Andreas Bader is constantly kind of disparaging and dismissing, written by Ulrike Meinhof. And he says, you know, they're, that's for the liberal wankers or something like that, for the journalists kind of to lap up is these long mm. kind of boring expositions about revolutionary That's for the, that's for the PMC, as one might say indeed. today. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, it's, yeah. Just, it's just mistranslated in the, in the subtitles yeah. of the film. Um, so, I mean, you know, it kind of, I don't think it ever really, um, it captures the glamour or the appeal, at least, through the aesthetic more than through the politics. I wondered, you know, I wondered if there was some something more subtle going on in that episode in that scene where which i mentioned where it's enslin berating her parents over um israeli oppression of the palestinians and because the dynamic there is also i mean it was suggests you know it's kind of maybe i'm reading too much into it but it's kind of suggested that she's um her willingness to kind of criticize to be to see herself as an enemy of israel um, at the same time as kind of criticizing the German state as fascist, is partly that effort by that generation of German radicals to emancipate themselves, you know, from uh, from the kind of apolitical conformity and um, indifference and apathy, what they perceived as indifference and apathy of their parents' generation who had, you know, lived in the aftermath of the war or through mm. the war. Um, but they end up being, you know, opponents of Israel. The irony is that they end up being yeah. these extreme, virulent opponents of of Israel, um, and calling, like, you know, calling everyone who works for the West German state a pig, you know. No, I mean, I think the the anti semitism. I think, although it's not expressed so clearly, if you know a little bit of the history yeah, of the time, it's indicated. It's, yeah. I mean, the fact that these Germans going off. Um, you know, to, to learn from the Palestinians, you know, how to kill Jews, basically. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. it, it's a little bit, it, it's kind of sticks in your throat a bit. Um, and it, it struck me yeah. even more watching it the second time around. Other left, far left groups um, and terrorist groups at the time also um, undertook actions which would be classed as anti-Semitic. I mean, you know, attacking um, the kind of Jewish community centers and things like that. Um, and yeah, then the there's Japanese the kind of more... Red Army, they, among the most extreme... Yeah. Um, and also one of the surviving kind of members of the RAF, who's a he's a you know, effectively a neo-Nazi lawyer or um, you know a far-right lawyer today in Germany. I think if he's still alive, he's a minor character in the movie. But um, you know the 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 anti the anti-Semitic strand to well, their leftism, I think, is real, even if it's not kind of fully explored in the movie. Well, I mean, the the lawyer in the film, who's kind of fairly fairly important in the first half of the film um horst mahler who's a founding member of the raf uh, is now a neo-nazi and is serving time or was serving time until recently for holocaust denial yeah, that's, that's the guy i meant yeah 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 so you know it, it's we can get into i think and I, I do want to talk a little bit in not just yet but in, in a bit about um maybe the connections between the raf and fascism um because i think they're there's some lineages there, but I think Whoa. just to re- just to re- just to return to Phil's point, I think hmm. the this kind of sympathy that it generates is certainly if you know or can place um, them in their context is this notion that you know g- young Germans felt in the 1960s looking at their parents like what the hell you guys were all complicit with with fascism right or at least you know or at least stood idly by you know which was which is probably just as bad um, and so. Their idea that the German state was becoming fascist or was fascist is obviously 
untrue. Um, but the idea that the that there was no change, there hadn't been a real changing of the guard within German institutions, I think is pretty shocking. And, and we can understand the kind of, um, yeah, the sort of disgust for, from of that generation looking at looking at their elders. And so that yeah. kind of t- that keys into the appeal that the RAF had, I think, um, yeah. which is which is has an aesthetic element, of course, of like being cool and young and not having anything to do with that past, right? Um, yeah. And the the opening is very good as well. I thought, you know, where they um, they show the um, the student protests around the Shah's visit, and the brutality of the police response, the clashes with the um, the kind of the stooge, the stooge Iranians who are brought out. You know, were the kind of secret service Iranians who are out there to make mm. it seem as if there is a popular base with the Shah. Um, you know, I thought all of that yeah. was well done, and it captured that moment as well. I thought very well. Yeah, I mean, I guess the in one sense, the way the film sort of sets out the appeal of the Red Army faction is partly that, you know, here's Ulrika Meinhof's middle class life. Look how kind of boring and she goes to the seaside and goes to barbecues and all, all of this sort of thing. That needs to be rejected as much as, you know, fascism does. There's the, the unarmed protester who gets shot early on and killed. Um, there's the scene where Rudy Dutschke gets shot by just some kid on the street um who hates communists and so there is a kind of i guess it's it's trying to portray this like this is the context of you've got to fight against uh, you know the, the the boring middle class consumerist lifestyle i don't think it's an accident that there's a department store that gets firebombed um but also the the fascists and the, the you know the people who are going to have the guns and are going to attack you if you're um if you're a student i guess the the other thing is there is, I would definitely agree with both of you, there is an aesthetic appeal or it's definitely suggested that like them driving, like listening to rock music, drinking, shooting guns out the car, um, that is part of it. That it's like, it's, it made me think like, so Barda gets caught speeding by a, by a policeman and I just thought, oh, you know, Lenin would never have, have uh, put himself in that situation. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's just I, like, well, I, it's not, they're not sober and serious. They're kind of wild and anarchistic and uh, nihilistic. And there is some, you know, there is some appeal to that. It's, it's quite, quite rock and roll and destructive. There is a funny irony, I think, there, which is that they take their delinquency at some time but you know they're you know whether petty rule breaking or you know explicit law breaking as a sign of their disrespect for bourgeois mores and norms and laws um and therefore as a mark of political seriousness but when you when you zoom out and you look at it from you know from wherever you are watching this film it's pretty obvious that it's actually a mark of unseriousness um that what they took to be seriousness is actually unseriousness because they don't have any um proper revolutionary discipline uh, because they don't have their eyes on the prize. They're willing to kind of get caught for speeding, which is just completely stupid if you want to, you know, um, and then also, the, you know, just the petty crime, which some of it might be justified in terms of, um, you know, robbing a bank to keep the their revolutionary struggle going. Um, but other times it just seems to be kind of petty crime just for the sake of it to kind of laugh in the face of authority, um, mm. which, yeah, again, it, it all comes across as rather adolescent. Yeah, I guess one one thing about the reception of the film, which is that it's it's um, kind of I guess been interpreted as almost halfway between a documentary and a and a film about history, that it it deliberately doesn't try and give too much of an interpretation as to 
the why it's it's more the how of all these things happened and there was um i'm going to try and pronounce it in german but the the uh, the concept here is that there's a kind of an image um an image sausage machine so like an image sausage grinder and this is the way that the film kind of sets out what happens it's just like image after image rather than trying to give the i guess the the political reasoning or the the motivations and this is uh builder versus Verwerstung machine. So German listeners can wash out their ears with soap after hearing that <laughs> uh, abomination. But I think there is something to that, that it's it's like as much as it's obviously a film about the RAF, it's not trying to say like, here's the reason, here's how they recruited people. Here's was the direct appeal. It's more, here are some events and here's the kind of um, like, yeah, the images yeah. <laughs> put through this sausage grinder. I mean, the weakest part of the film, I think, is it's um, it, the way it doesn't really give you political and historical context. It's hard for a film to do that, and I wouldn't be too hard in kind of tasking the film for for failing for failing to do it. But it it is something that I, I thought I remember thinking this at the time, and I think it even more so now that how much you draw from the film depends on how much you know about the period and how much you know about the politics and the history and have a vision of it. Cause I, I, I wonder what it's like for someone who's completely depoliticized. It doesn't really have a sense of, of that, of those times and the politics and the dynamics, you know, do you come, would you come away with that and just go, huh? Yeah. Terrorism. That's pretty stupid and violent. Okay. That's, maybe a takeaway but also that's a fairly shallow one um it's so I, I don't context know as well right because um it's still the height of the war on terror right when the movie was released yeah and so it point. was a very different you know there is kind of yeah. um there is a night you know there is kind of the proto form of terrorist nihilism you'd get with uh, with islamist terrorism or al-qaeda at least um you know but it's a very watching it back then it was a very different kind of perspective on terrorism and on the movies about terrorism that were coming out at the time, right? Which would always be set kind of, um, if their setting was the Middle East, it wasn't, um, you know, there's that great scene in this movie where the the young Palestinian guerrillas are kind of fascinatedly looking over the German nude sunbathing in the camp in Jordan. You know, a completely different kind of feel and aesthetic from the kinds of... Um, you know, the kind of uh, Islamist terrorism and its portrayal in the movies of the time back mm. in late 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on, on this point, actually, what what do we make of the film's um, explanation for terrorism? Because I think that context is important. There were a lot of, there's a lot of kind of soul searching of like, what, you know, did we create these terrorists? Are they really like a, a dark mirror for, for ourselves um, or whatever in the context of the war on terror? But what does the, you know, or what did you guys make of the film's like attempt to explain where terrorism comes from? Too soft on the left. In what sense? <laughs> I mean, Phil, you would say that, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to ask Phil in what sense. <laughs> Is well, in the too, sense that it makes it off. kind of a generic, you know, it kind of buys in the way it makes it this generic thing. Oh, you know, this is the dark aspect of our society. It concedes too much to the RAF's own critique of West German society, you know, um, and also at the same time as kind of making it into a banal, you know, kind of a banal, um, even a political account. Oh, it's a society that's not properly come to its come to terms with its past. It's got this kind of repressed kind of history of violence. There isn't enough kind of, you know, radical politics is suppressed being then it's driven out to the fringes in these terrorist forms. It's all, um, 
you know, there's no, I mean, and again, I don't know how you present this stuff in a movie, but it's not really a genuine, you know, kind of doesn't provide any real genuine insights into the um, political and social structures and contradictions of West Germany in the Cold War. Well, and I think I think here also the disconnection or to the extent that there is a, a so yeah, some sort of disjuncture in the new left um, when it degenerates into terrorism. And I think we can all agree that there is a degeneration into terrorism. What what is it degenerating from? What is it? What is the film's depiction of left wing politics at the time? And I think there it's kind of flimsy because what you get is the fairly stereotyped images of, you know, crowds of students going, yeah, 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 yeah. kind of in the background, the NPCs, basically, whether they're protesting the Shah or it's a, or whether it's at that big conference um, against the Vietnam War, where you have Rudy Duchka speaking, you have, I think, Tariq Ali, Ernst Mandel speaking as well. But, you know, unless you happen to recognize their faces or, or you know identify that or know that as as a fact you don't really see that it's just kind of a stage army of yeah 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 students so you don't really have a sense of how popular the students are how much popular appeal they have um whether they support the eventual terrorism what their politics are what the dynamics are within left politics at the time so it the, you it's all of it's all kind of um, relatively thin and, and and superficial, um, so it then becomes difficult to evaluate what relationship terror has as a tactic, a tactic that is chosen within the context of the left, and what what that choice represents. Hmm. Um, so the idea of degeneration of of left wing politics, do you get that? I mean, is that does that become clear watching the film? I'm not sure. Hmm. I, I mean, I think the film does, it has that, that mouthpiece of the, the kind of the head of, it's not like the Edgar Hoover character, uh, J. Edgar Hoover character, but it kind of is like the the voice of the establishment, um, Bruno Ganz's character and his, his sort of sidekick who he can explain things to. Um, and I think there is, you know, the film does, at least through that character, say that its myths make terrorists. So there is a reason, you know, there's a practical reason not to um, martyr too many of the RAF because that like um that myth is 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 important for reproducing them and it's a lack of political responsiveness in in systems there's an, there's another a line that that you know same character makes and that these are sort of the this is as far as it it goes it it's it sort of can't you know i don't think it's like um it made me think of some of uh, jg ballard's um books particularly the the um, millennium people and kingdom come because i think these are two mm. like um good or or like quite quite a lot more in-depth ways of looking at like middle-class radicalism and in, on the one millennium people you have this these kind of like outer boroughs um of london middle-class revolutionaries who their prompt for act action is essentially boredom and they the characters are just you know they want to they desire change and excitement and then in kingdom come it's instead of that kind of focus on psychology it's advertising instead and it's suburbs not the outer kind of boroughs of, of London. And there you have middle-class fascism and it's, you know, the prompt for action is a revolt against consumerism. And instead of wanting kind of change and excitement, they want danger and an opportunity to show um, bravery. And I think that's, you know, that is a bit of a stylized comparison of those two, but I think that's what the film doesn't, it's, it doesn't really, I think, say all that much about, you know, cause it is quite a, a, ser- a drastic kind of, um, situation that the film is portraying but it doesn't really try and get under the skin um of that at all 
I don't, I don't think. Um, but, you know, again, that might be being a little bit critical of a film having to show these kind of <laughs> answer these big questions um, in the course of things about two hour runtime. Um, but one of the big questions that the film, I think, particularly in the context of both those previous films about the RAF and also, as Alex was saying, other films about German history, which came out all in a, in a glut, seemingly, at least for an international audience um, at that kind of end of the, the noughties. What what is the legacy of the RAF today? Um, and how does the film contribute to this? I think just before I throw over to you guys, there is a one of the big questions about this is like, does the film mythologize or t- attempt to demythologize the RAF? And there are some... There are some like analyses of 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 the film, which says that that it, it in attempting to demythologize, i.e., not present um, a coherent kind of explanation, and said that kind of image sausage grinder approach that contributes more to the mythology. And then, of course, some people would say, well, no, the fact that it it basically shows these um, left wing kind of urban gorillas as essentially not very serious and kind of just interested in um you know just doing crimes and being cool then it's it is trying to undermine that myth but what did um what did you guys make of this no i think that's that's a nice way to present it i mean um the way that you've just done george presenting that kind of debate between mythologizing and demythologizing i think you know the flatness that i critiqued earlier in terms of the flatness of left politics and the general context of the time in which these terrorists emerge but you don't really get a sense of their in whether the relationship you know, and the choice of terrorism is a natural consequence of left politics, a break from it, um, exploring the tensions of possibilities and, and constraints at the time. No, you don't get any of that. But ironically, that flatness of, of the kind of context maybe is more accurately portrays the terrorism as being just adventurism, actionism, trying to spring out from history through sheer force of will and force um, rather than an engagement with the society at the time. So you know, maybe it ends up it ends up doing it doing it right. Ultimately, I my I fall down on the thing that I think the film is fairly neutral in its presentation of it, and it's uh, that's a strength, right? Um, that it doesn't mythologize nor demythologize. It's just kind of like this is what happened, and and of course your interpretation of it will be informed by what you happen to know and and think you know about the the politics of the time and of the RAF. So I mean, one thing that I, I just wanted to throw this in there. I think one one thing that I took from it, especially in second watching, is the way that, you know, because there's such a, they see themselves as anti-fascist, obviously, um, but also as breaking with the anti-fascism of the popular front period, um, of not making alliances with the bourgeoisie, but of um, directly seeking violent means to take on fascism directly. Um, Fascism, you know, famously brought colonialism home to the metropole, um, into those kind of techniques and um, not just techniques of, of rule, but it, but in terms of the brutality and you know the, the Nazis attempt to colonize the Slavic East and so on. Um, the RAF ironically then tries to bring anti-colonial armed warfare and guerrilla struggle to the metropole. So there's a kind of neat hmm. sort of parallel there of things coming home from the periphery um, that happens with fascism and then that happens with left-wing terrorism as well. Of course, the guerrilla struggles generally failed in places where there weren't national liberation movements to be had so in south america they generally all fail and they're a product of again of frustration with um other forms of politics in many cases uh, related to the lack of a development of an of an of an industrial working class in those places compared to europe and so revolutionaries turn to to terror tactics and to, to guerrilla 
um, tactics as a way of advancing their politics in the kind of 60s, 70s and 80s. Yeah, you had military um you had military dictatorships though in places like Argentina and Brazil, right, which is different from West Germany. However limited West German democracy was, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the kind of Latin American dictatorship. No, and and those Latin American dictatorships are the are the one kind of type of regime which you could call fascist, you know, after the fascisms of uh Central Europe in the in the in the 1920s and 30s and yeah, 40s. They weren't though. Well, there's a debate about that. I, I think they're the closest you get at, at any rate. So, but yeah, they, they were responding to those. Um, and so it, the only kind of armed struggles which do succeed are the national liberation movements in Asia and, and, and Africa. Um, they obviously don't succeed in, in Latin America for a variety of reasons and obviously fail in, in Europe where they're attempted also in Italy with the Brigate Rosse. Yeah, so I guess the um, it might be useful to just unpick what the 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 myth of the RAF is in contemporary Germany. And the um, I mentioned Marin's writing on this before, and we'll link to this in the in the show notes. But the idea is that there is a very specific sort of set of three propositions at, at base that the RAF myth in contemporary Germany is is built on. And the first is that they engaged in a, in an armed struggle, kind of rather than a terroristic spree the second that they um suffered isolation torture so the damaging um psychological effects of being kept in prison from others and then the third part which i think is probably the most historically contentious or at least with regard to the film is that the that first generation of um raf leaders was murdered in prison by the state rather than committing suicide so i think in in that context there is the film does i would say take a stand on at least two of those three if not if not all three. So there is probably an attempt to to say something about that kind of, um, you know, w- what really happened and how we should understand that that story. But um, Phil, I wanted to know, did this, on rewatching it, did it make you um, want to want to start your own revolutionary cell in, in Canterbury, build, build some bombs? Um, or, you know, was it uh, successful in demythologizing this um this approach to politics no it didn't uh, didn't make me want to build bombs back when it came out and it didn't make me want to build bombs or launch uh, revolutionary cells this time round either that said i mean um i mean i tweeted this but after the in the aftermath of the lockdown i'd been doing so many walks in the countryside i felt like i could have launched a rural insurgency a national a kentish national liberation front i'd become so familiar with the countryside around canterbury but somehow I don't think that the um, that the uh, peasants and villagers of rural Kent would uh, flock to my flock to my cause exactly. I think it probably would have gone down like uh, the Latin American guerrilla struggles. So so I was feeling I was feeling somewhat frustrated at the end of lockdown. But that aside, no, um, I've had no desire to uh, to set up a uh, RAF, a Kentish RAF equivalent. Yeah, I think the well. That's probably a good thing. Any um, MI five or six listeners will will be happy happy to hear that. Um, but no, I think there's there is something about this. When so the film ends in nineteen 
77 and that's the the kind of as i'd mentioned before the german autumn where you have this kidnap and murder of that industrialist i mentioned uh, schleyer who was reportedly in um, an ex-ss guy you had the hijacking of this um flight assassination of the um the kind of chief prosecutor of west germany siegfried buback and this um kind of failed kidnapping as well so there is a, uh, an extent to which the you know the raf stands in for the radical or one aspect of radical left-wing politics in the in the 70s and 80s and particularly around 77 and i think the i think on re-watching it i think it's clearer than i'd had thought the first time i saw it that the attempt that the film is is definitely an attempt to sort of to demythologize and to and to say well actually these you know there wasn't really as coherent a um a plan for like revolutionary change there wasn't a political project it was actually more a, a series of individuals doing things for a more or less random reason and that is a you know that that is obviously um going to to weaken the the appeal of this of this mode of politics perhaps or maybe maybe not i mean if you haven't got anything to do of a of a saturday maybe it, it gives you um uh, some options with your leisure time um so just to to kind of round things out a little bit i guess we've talked about this period of um german history particularly 60s and, and 70s but what about today is is a kind of should we in the at the end of the end of history be worried about a kind of or or interested in a kind of a new raf an raf 2.0 um today are the conditions possible for that kind of of response well i mean i just wanted to make one point just to continue the what i was saying about fascism but it does relate a little bit to to today's circumstances i suppose which is that if anybody displays you know fascist tendencies i mean other than the police and so on uh it's actually the raf particularly in their anti-intellectualism and actionism i I think they go so far as to you know kind of usher in an almost total severance between thought and action right in in favor of action so i mean it's obviously an abandonment of of dialectics but it's also you know a a kind of creeps into a certain nihilism i think and in that regard it does have a, a certain similarities to fascism which of course is the the ideology of action above all um not not of thought almost that action might kind of crush thought um and so you know i i think we see that obviously this the, within depicted in the, the characters um all of them this kind of desire to throw themselves into action to kind of resolve certain issues they, i think another irony is also that they you know they talk i think eslin at several points talks about like authoritarian personality you know kind of a reference to 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 adorno's concept and in fact again it's them who display the most authoritarian personality i think in their sort of narcissism and um or narcissism which is meant to compensate for their kind of weak ego which would make them then prey to to sort of forms of authoritarianism so i think that is is something that um the film actually deliberately or or not you know depicts very well the fact that that their thought is just kind of slogans and really when it comes down to it and when they come down to really thinking in quotation marks and discussing what should be done it's purely about action and every debate resolves um in resolves itself by in the favor of the person who suggested the most radical violent action and to the exclusion of of anyone else so you know it ultimately showed that there is no debate even about tactics let alone about kind of wider strategy it is just act go and if you're show weakness you will be crushed and i think you know that ends up sounding kind of fascist to be honest yeah 
I mean, is is it action or is it praxis? Praxis. I mean, because you know, a um, a, gra- a a spoonful of praxis is worth a ton of theory, isn't that? You know, I guess my my sort of my thinking here is to a certain but, extent. But there is no theory. That's the point, right? I mean, it, it, that there's so it has to be a unity of theory and practice, not. Like, uh, I'm not sure about this theory. It's kind of all bullshit. It's just egghead stuff and the masses the can't theory, understand it anyway. Yeah, Let's just act. The theory, the theory is the West German state is fascist, which it clearly wasn't, you know, so. Is 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 there then the conditions for some aspects or, or, or is there a similarity between perhaps this kind of, um, you know, the, the starting point of anti-fascism and contemporary anti-fascism for this kind of protest against the police state, which the film sort of that, inciting incident with this with the shah's visit and blm or kind of anti um kind of a police abolitionist movements i'm just i guess i'm just trying to ask the question is there any possibility that we could see this kind of um a, a movement more towards an raf scenario from contemporary left starting points because it feels it feels very alien i think on rewatching it feels like kind of ancient history but I was just wondering, like, is there any yeah. possibility of this kind but of recurring? I suppose every terrorism, every, you know, every particular era produces its own form of terrorism. And Islamist terrorism was the form that was most appropriate to our era. Um, you know, I think that's, uh, that's not accidental, right? Um, so you have anarchist terrorism in the late 19th century and early 20th mm. century. Um, you get the red terrorism and, um, you know, discounting, I suppose, the... Um, Palestinian terrorism kind of associated with the Palestinian National Liberation Movement. But that aside, in Western Europe, you get the red terrorism. Um, but that, you know, yeah. So, I mean, we get Islamist terrorism, I think, is the right, is the one that's for our times. I mean, it's at least globalist. terrorism from, from people, I mean, not from the state, right? I mean, civil society terrorism. Yeah, I don't, I don't really buy that state. The idea of um, state terrorism seems to me to be completely incoherent. But um, maybe, anyway, maybe that's not that quite aside, right, though. Just in the instead of like Islamist terrorism, maybe today it's like individual atomized terrorism, i.e., the terrorism of the school right. shooter, which so, is like completely nihilistic, yeah, well, completely let me, individualized. Let me you know. let me just make the point first, right? So with okay. Islamist terrorism, though, I think it's you know, I mean, it's identitarian, very clearly, right? It is nihilistic. Um, it's globalist, right? It appeals to a kind of a political, a supranational political community that's, you know, even more mythical than any kind of world community you might wish to talk about in the sense that it just doesn't, it's an imaginated, you know, completely imaginary construct of um, Islamist radicals. Um, and so, you know, it seems to me that's appropriate. Now, the left has been pushing the line for a long time that there is a right-wing terrorism, Um you know that it's not lone wolves. That it's um, that there's an organised kind of uh, backlash among um, you know kind of um, fascists, uh, as with the shootings. You know the shooting of the socialist youth camp in Sweden, um, the shooting, um, the massacre of the mosque in New Zealand, and what have you. Um, but it doesn't seem to me to be any. You know, I mean, it's simply if you look at the casualties involved, and you look at the level of kind of. Um, ideological influence and political organization it's simply there is no you know comparison between um extreme right terrorism today and the um and islamist terrorism in terms of its scale so that said you know i mean it's all identity politics isn't it 
So if we do have uh, if we do have a terrorism appropriate to our age, it's the terrorism of identity politics, whether it's white nationalists or um, or Islamists. Yeah. I don't see I don't see like a left I don't see a, a specifically left version of it. You know. Yeah. Um, I, I, I I okay. Well, if if you know identity politics is the is an ideological aspect, then I think I'm going to stick with my idea of like the the terrorism of the like an an era of of bowling alone or posting alone terrorism terrorisming alone that there is something about like the complete kind of collapse of these intermediary intermediating institutions in civil society but that so is Islamist terrorism right because well, the point is they radicalize online you know that was the thing so it wasn't the classic you know the classic kind of terrorist radicalization they would join like you know a large a larger kind of organization political organization or social group they would be frustrated by the um you know by the compromises and limits of that and they would gradually become more extreme right whereas the classic kind of model here is kind of they radicalize online without going through those mediating processes which involve connections to institutions and organizations which they are frustrated by yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I, I think I've always been surprised that there isn't more terrorism today. And I don't just mean Islamist terrorism, um, because there's obviously quite a lot of that. But of course, the, if you believe what the authorities have told us for the past 20 years, there should be way more, right? Just because of the ease of, of, uh, of carrying out these terrorist acts. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's obviously less um desire to for, for Islamist terrorism in the West than than um, than than many have portrayed there to be. Um, but I as a general point, I think I'm always surprised that there's not more terrorism just because of the the nihilism, the kind of individual atomized bleakness of, of today, um, that it might not lead people to act kind of violently and, and explode their own feelings of uh, inadequacy onto the world, basically. Yeah, um, and I think so, social well, so, I just going I think that social dislocation, you know, is so kind of advanced that even kind of terrorism is too much for it. Well, that's a good you know, that, it's that's kind possible. of better to you know to sit alone at home, um, or to be you know just to kind of involve yourself in consumerism or whatever. Yeah, I mean, so I, I but I I think the question as to whether there would be a left wing version of this, I, you know, I, I struggle to picture it, and the reason for that is is that for all that. A lot of terrorism, particularly in the 21st century, is incredibly kind of atomized, individualistic, narcissistic, and nihilistic. Um, that that there are still banners that they wave, right? Whether it's um, you know white nationalism or Islamism or you know what, whatever you else you might have, right? There's still a banner that you um, you hold to some ideas, or at least at a symbolic level. And what under what banner would leftist terrorism? Um, be done today, right? Under kind of democratic socialism, right? No, that 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 just yeah. seems to jar. Um, under environmentalism, okay, there, yes, there, quite possibly. Um, but then its connection to being left wing is already pretty tenuous, anyway. Uh, so I, I don't know. I to answer your question, I don't quite see it. I don't see what banner it would um, rally under. Yeah, no, just one one small point of detail which which is uh in in the film you see them sending messages by um reference to different words on on different pages of moby dick 
and this is something which isn't like made a great deal of in in the film but they were kind of obsessed by this book and this you know the white the white whale was was capitalism and um they were they were kind of searching for a way to destroy this and i think this is the reading that they had of it anyway and that is you know that could still be the banner the banner of anti-capitalism that the left could could cohere around leftist terrorism in 2023 but it just seems very it doesn't end unlikely. well for the people hunting the whale i mean i think that's the point of moby uh, dick isn't it spoiler alert ishmael gets a gets a good story out of it at least um but no i think i so, think so that capitalism is, good... is brendan fraser have i understood this right yes <laughs> you have <laughs> so go, go out you and um, you win you win podcasting today alex go out and shoot him with a harpoon um but yeah no i think it's um it's kind of a i guess i don't know if it's a, a a good thing or a bad thing to kind of to conclude that the possibilities for leftist terrorism aren't there because it it does speak ultimately to the i guess the weakness of of kind of organized working class which which in some ways pu- pushes the the terrorists um further than they than they would otherwise be and that's a, obviously a very low level today so yeah Okay, um, we'll leave this here. I hope you've enjoyed this. If you want more film, more discussions of political films, let us know. Um, or indeed about arts in general. We don't do enough of it. We probably should try to do more. Um, but uh, we look forward to your comments on this and to discussing it at the next Alpha Bonus Bonus. And that's it from us for now. Here's to another six years of BungaCast. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.